You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, To Marry or Not to Marry. Now looking at Paul, Church Fathers, Conclusion. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Want to win a chance for a free tour of Israel? From March 1st to June 8th, Douglas's new website subscribers have the chance to be entered into a draw for a free tour. There are two ways to win. You can become a new website member or ask a friend to sign up. Then email confirmation of the subscriptions by replying to Douglas's newsletter. There's no limit to the number of entries. Sign up five friends, be entered five times. The winner will be announced in early July. Now here's today's teaching. Welcome back to the fifth and final talk in our series on divorce and remarriage. Thank you for hanging with me and persevering through the material, particularly if this contains a lot of new thoughts. We've seen in the previous lectures that marriage between a man and woman is intended to be permanent, but it can be broken. We've also seen that the Old Testament permitted divorce on not just the grounds of adultery, but other grounds as well. The dispute among the rabbis, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, had been forgotten by the second century, probably even by the late first century. These figures held respectively very liberal and more conservative views on what justifies a divorce. Hillel said, you don't have to prove any fault, just divorce. And Shammai said, no, there must be a cause Well, that dispute is clearly in the background of the uh, texts on divorce in Matthew, Matthew 5 and 19. They're not referred to in Mark and Luke, which are written to more Gentile audiences. So it's not surprising that the original dispute was forgotten. In the words of Instone Brewer, the early church was soon separated from the synagogue, and the Jewish world was itself cut off from part of its past, by the destruction of Jerusalem. And of course, Instone Brewer is referring to the end of the temple, the end of formal Judaism in the year 70 AD. This was the end of that first war with Rome. Instone Brewer continues, background knowledge that could be taken for granted in the original readers of the New Testament disappeared from the church. The misunderstandings that resulted, especially in the teaching on divorce and remarriage, have continued to the present. Well, let's look at the teaching of Paul, uh, and this is found in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, starting in verse 10, To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And then in verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. Well, one uh, bit of possible confusion, let me address this. Uh, Many people think that when Paul says, I, not the Lord, he's not daring to put himself on the same level as his master. And he's saying, well, whereas Jesus said certain things about divorce, for me, it's just my opinion, take it or leave it. At the end of the chapter, uh, he has some things to say also, and he says that he believes that he has the Holy Spirit. The apostles were just as inspired. We, we're not to pit, we should not pit 
the teaching of the apostles against the teaching of Jesus. The whole idea was that the apostles would be able to relay the message of the Lord. And yet Jesus never spoke about mixed marriages. So Paul is revealing the Lord's will on an issue common and more and more common in the Greco-Roman world, mixed marriages. That is, a believer, a Christian believer is married to a pagan. And that's why he says, I, not the Lord. Jesus never talked about that. Whereas when it comes to covenant marriages, Jew marrying Jew, Jesus spoke on that. So they agree on the topic of covenant people, Jesus and Paul. And that means that assuming no grounds for divorce and no remarriage, anyone who deserts a Christian spouse, well, would still be married to them. Ideally, reconciliation will be reached. But Paul realizes that that cannot always happen. Now, if you've caused someone to uh, leave or you've, you've caused this breach, this separation, and you're still married, you need to live as a single person. But if someone, the non-believer leaves, uh, there's nothing you can do. Uh, if, if that's the, the case, then you're free. You're not under bondage. So Paul accepted neglect or abandonment as grounds for divorce and remarriage. He also refers to withholding of conjugal love just a few verses earlier. In fact, we'll see that the promises of the marriage vows are in the background of everything he writes. And this chapter stresses the four obligations of marriage, which correspond to the four Old Testament grounds for divorce. Not explicitly, but they're all implied. What is divorce by separation? Well, I, I mentioned in an earlier talk that divorcium, the Latin word that gives us our English word divorce, means separation. Desertion is grounds for divorce because it deprives a spouse of essential marital rights. And in the Roman world, divorce was separation. Separation was divorce. If the unbeliever left, there was nothing else to do. Of course, you want the relationship to work out. But ultimately, the Christian spouse would be free to remarry, not under bondage. Now, if Christians could not remarry, then they'd still be in bondage to the spouse who had left, even if that spouse had, re be, uh, had remarried. Imagine you're, you were married to a man, he goes out and he marries someone else, and well, you can't remarry? Is somehow the original marriage between the two of you still valid? No, of course not. One other thing about this chapter, the very end, Paul says, and he's speaking of a, a widow, uh, that she's free to remarry whoever she wants to, uh, and as long as it's someone, as long as it's a fellow Christian. That itself is significant because in Judaism, there was a thing called leveret marriage. It's required. This is in Deuteronomy 25, 5. If a man dies and he's had no children, his wife has not borne any children, then that man's brother is obligated to marry her, to raise up seed for his deceased brother. Now, while that could work in a uh, situation where everyone lives together, basically the church and the state are one, the commonwealth of Israel is living by the Torah, that does make sense. But when you move outside into the Roman world uh, with completely different laws of not just marriage, but property, uh, it, there's no way that would work. And so the, uh, the leveret marriage, the rules of Judaism, Deuteronomy 25, uh, do not bind uh, the widow. She's free to marry anyone she wants. And that's the assumption. If your marriage comes to an end, 
then you could remarry. And that language, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39, she's free to marry whoever she may please. It's part of all the standard ancient divorce documents. So the docu documents were intended to give freedom to start again. So it appears that widows and divorcees had equal rights, permission to remarry. Yet the traditional church interpretation, not the original one, but one that's become traditional, forbids remarriage except after death or adultery. And that simply does not line up with the understanding of the first century rabbis. It doesn't line up with the teaching of Jesus or Paul. What would Paul say to us today? Well, one thing, believers should never cause a divorce. And they should never use groundless divorce. That is, resort to a, to a no-fault divorce just to start over. I want a different spouse. Never. And secondly, a believer who wrongly obtained a divorce should strive to be reconciled and not remarry. Because if you remarry, then the divorce is irreversible. If they're already remarried, that is, the, the, uh, the other party is remarried, of course, then it's too late. So Paul expands the teaching. He doesn't change it, but Paul addresses the broader Greco-Roman world where it would quite often happen that one of the spouses, probably the wife more than the husband, would be baptized and the other one might not follow. Okay, well, what about the church fathers? What happened? Uh, the, the teaching of Jesus and Paul makes sense in the background. Uh, with that background information, understanding the dispute between Hillel and Shammai clarifies the verses in the gospel, and understanding that in the Greco-Roman world, separation was divorce, uh, that makes sense of 1 Corinthians 7, and it uh, explains why Paul needs to speak uh, to those issues. What about the church fathers? And these are normally taken to be the writers of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, sometimes even later. Well, um, as I mentioned, mentioned before, I think their teaching is incorrect. And that's because that original debate has been forgotten. Second century Judaism and Christianity alike, both, they, they overreact in the realm of sexual ethics. And some of this has to do with the, the teaching of the Gnostics. This is a philosophical uh, movement that even has kind of a Christian form, though it is certainly not Christian. And they believe that the creator of the uh, world, the Old Testament God, is evil and that the physical uh, matter, sex, and so forth, these are, these are bad, and you should abase your body. You should treat it harshly. And the early church, although they were so much closer to the spirit of the apostles than we are in many areas, they, they did often err on the side of harshness. Now, how do you know this? Simply by reading what they've written. And dozens, scores of documents have survived uh, from the 2nd, 3rd century, 4th century, and on. So generally, when I read them, I'm very encouraged. You can feel the spirit of faith. They're right on things, but not always. What they taught about forgiveness, if you deny Christ, was it went beyond what Jesus said. Um, uh, some groups would refuse to allow you back if you caved in at a time of persecution. Their teaching on uh, church uh, discipline was very harsh. Uh, for, for some sins that you committed, you would have to lie on the floor in the back. You couldn't have the Lord's Supper, and you'd be under probation for three years or ten years. They had some very strong, very strict rules. Their theology of martyrdom was, I think, a little bit overdone. Now, I may be wrong on that, but it was not just bring it on, baby. It, it's like I, I really look forward to 
uh, being eaten by the wild animals and my flesh being burned off the bones. The immortality of the soul is a teaching that's explicitly denied in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6, other passages. But it came in in the second century through the Greeks. And once most Christians started believing that the soul was immortal, uh, then what came along with that was the doctrine of infinite hell. Let's say infinite nonstop torture. And the gruesome uh, tortures that God's prepared for unbelievers uh, become increasingly explicit, uh, especially as we get into the Middle Ages. I think this is so unfortunate that that, that doctrine, the immortality of the soul, crept in. Then there is asceticism, the rise of monasticism. And while that, that does, doesn't really get going until uh, the 3rd century and 4th century, it's been on the way for a while. Harsh treatment of the body. Well, even Paul has to warn against this, while it may look... Uh, they look very wise or promising in terms of maturity. Paul said it's of no value, Colossians 2. And sometimes those who treat their own bodies harshly, they treat other people harshly. The church of the early centuries went astray in the area of polity, how they were organized. Instead of a consensus, a, a group of uh, peers leading a church, that is the overseers, you had the rise of the chief overseer, the bishop. Increasingly, there's less autonomy, more and more heavy-handedness, and you get to, well, what we have in many churches today, one-man lead. The teaching on divorce lacked grace and nuance, and even on remarriage, it was really off-base. Frequently, uh, those who had uh, been become widowed would be told not to remarry, or they were told that uh, you can, but you really you shouldn't. Whereas Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, younger widows should remarry, and he was defining younger as 60 and younger. And then, of course, there's the teaching on celibacy, which is embryonic in the second and third centuries, but it keeps growing. And celibacy is a good thing. Paul and Jesus both say, if you have the gift, do not marry. That's better than marriage, if you have that gift. But eventually, it became honored, and centuries later, it became required for church leaders. You know, someone asked me, did the second century church use certificates of divorce? And that would be, um, I thought that was a great question. How would we recognize such a document? Because it would seem to give uh, weight to the argument that uh, divorce was allowed for more than one reason. But how would we recognize that? So keep in mind, the in the Roman world, uh, probably the average person didn't have such a thing because divorce is separation. The person walks out. That's it. It's over. And as the generations went on, uh, increasingly, uh, Gentile Christians were the majority and the Jews became a very small minority. And yet within Palestine the Christians in those early decades were still viewed as Jews. So if they had to go through the local courts to get a certificate or write a certificate and get it validated, this would be within the context of Judaism. I don't think there would be an extra line, you know, sign here and initial if you're a Christian. So it might not be obvious in such a document whether someone was a Jew, a non-Christian, or a Jewish Christian. And this is long before the 
multitudinous documents in medieval canon law. Well, many documents have survived, but none that I know of that explicitly uh, talk about the teaching of Christ. And why would they? A divorce document is a, it's a civil thing. Later on, of course, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church sacramentalizes marriage. There's no release. You're mystically connected forever. Well, death could end it. But if you don't know where he is or where she went off to or whether he or she is alive, you, you cannot remarry. And that uh, has become a source of horrific entrapment for some people, uh, millions of people, in fact. Protestants have usually allowed two or three grounds uh, for divorce. But later, liberal Protestants think, especially 19th century, 20th century and on, they're right back to no-fault marriage. It's Hillel. Uh, the, the standards uh, of fidelity are pathetically low. All right, it's time to wrap up. Let me clarify some implications and let me uh, make, uh, uh, I, I want to talk about the importance of humility and caution. And after that, some suggestions for church leaders. So just clarify some of the implications here. The four grounds for valid divorce are found in one's wedding vows, nearly always. All four of these are mentioned in the Old Testament. Two are mentioned in the New Testament, two more are alluded to. Of course, altogether, we're referring to adultery, abuse, abandonment, and neglect. Second, without proper grounds, a second marriage is adultery. If you marry someone else when you've not had grounds to divorce your first spouse, then that's adultery. Now, that does not mean you go back to the first spouse, but it means that you are breaking uh, God's uh, command. You are doing it wrong. Interestingly, we're not told to break up a second marriage, even if it's improperly grounded. And this is, I'm sure, uh, as common today as it was back in the, in the first century AD. Uh, people would remarry without grounds. If we did that, <laughs> it would be really committing two grounds, two wrongs. Think of uh, David and Bathsheba. David's marriage to Bathsheba was born out of adultery. Well, technically, he committed adultery. Then she was no longer married to her husband because he had her husband killed. But God doesn't make, uh, he, God doesn't tell them you cannot be married because of this uh, sin that you have committed. In John 4, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. He doesn't tell her you need to go back to the first legitimate marriage. No, because that would be multiplying the wrongs. Okay, the implications. The grounds for valid divorce are found in one's vows. That is, if we make those promises and don't keep them, we could be divorced. Second, without proper grounds, a second marriage is adulterous. And yet, we're not told that second marriages have to be broken up, even if they are improperly grounded. And fourth, divorce is a last resort. Believers should never be the cause of a divorce. That is, they shouldn't break their own marriage vows or behave badly, hoping that my husband or wife will you know, lose it and trigger a divorce. And, and nor should believers initiate groundless divorce. That is, where the spouse has not broken his or her wedding vows. Humility and caution are so important. Why? Well, first, naivete. There are significant gaps in our knowledge, background information, what was really going on in the time of Jesus and in the broader world 
That's much needed. And for too long, we may have been taught a naive way of interpreting the Bible. The meaning of the Bible is not always obvious, and we're always interpreting whether we think a passage is easy or not. We're thinking it through. So the idea that, really, if you're good-hearted and you open up the Bible, you'll instantly understand what it means, that's naive. There was a brother who was very disturbed over the issue of, of divorce and remarriage. He had gone through something with his wife, and I suggested he might appreciate Enstone's Brewer's book. He wasn't sure. I said, look, I'll, I'll buy it for you. It'll be a gift. And I asked him if he'd read it. And I said, oh, it's a gift if you'll read the book and don't just jump to the conclusion. Well, I saw him at the very next church service. He hadn't read the book. He had simply gone to the conclusion, and then he rejected the entire book, which he had not read, because it contradicted Jesus in his view if we're insisting that the Bible must mean what I think it means, and we're not going to do any extra work, we're not going to progress in this area. A second reason that humility is so important is the human tendency to drift into legalism. It's easier sometimes to make a rule than to do extra reading or speak with those who know, know more than we do, or to patiently explore the nuance of Scripture. And nor will we learn if our hearts are full of hate with that legalism. I got a letter from a brother. Uh, this is to me. Your teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage are heretical. You will be judged most harshly for leading many people to hell because of this. None of the early Christians taught what you're teaching. Well, I, he's making a big assumption probably what he considers the early Christians, these are people living many generations after the apostles. And I'm admitting that the understanding of Jesus's words was lost, and the church became more and more legalistic. I'm trying to free people, not hurt people. And I'm sorry that uh, people would feel this way. Look, thirdly, why we need humility is because we tend to be proud. We think we're right. Well, I hope that's a helpful conclusion, admitting that there is significant naivete when it comes to interpreting the Bible. We need training to interpret. It's not always obvious. It's not always easy. And then there's a human tendency towards pride and towards legalism. And that's why, oh, humility and caution are so important, because we could be wrong. I could be wrong. You could be wrong. You could be partly wrong, partly right, okay? I'm going to end the talk there, unless you're a church leader who would like uh, some input, and I've got seven strong suggestions. So keep listening if you are a church leader, perhaps uh, you're an elder or a preacher, or you know whether you work for the church full-time or not. I'd say these, these suggestions are important for those who have influence and are respected. Okay, first, there are a lot of books out there on this topic, and I've read a lot of them on all different... Uh, positions on this topic. Let's read critically. Don't just read people you know you agree with. Read David Enstone Brewer. Why do I keep referring to him? Because he's the world's preeminent expert on first century marriage and divorce customs and documents. Visit his website. It's all in the notes that come with this talk. I think he's especially helpful because he provides sources. In his earlier book, uh, it's full of sources. You can see exactly what was said, and he paints a picture of expectations and practices in the ancient world. I would also recommend that you read 
Jerry Jones. Uh, Jerry and his wife have a ministry, a marriage ministry, but this fellow is a great thinker. Used to be head of the Bible department at Harding. He was an elder in Boston. He is uh, a fellow who has continued to grow and to learn, even though he's been a Christian over 60 years. His position coincides with that of David Enstone Brewer. I was encouraged because I met with Jerry a few years ago, and I realized in our discussion, well, this is the this is what Enstone Brewer teaches. Well, what does he emphasize? Well, you don't always have to identify who's guilty and who's innocent in a marriage. I mean, sometimes it is mainly one person, but it's very hard to untangle. A divorce severs the marriage. If people are divorced, the couple's no longer married in God's eyes, if it's a legitimate divorce. A past failed marriage doesn't demand a future life of singleness, because you're not mystically still tied to that person you married originally. And marriages that are destructive or abusive don't have to be maintained until a spouse is sexually unfaithful. So I've, I've talked to so many people. They're just waiting for their husband or wife to, to go to bed with someone else so they can get out of their marriage. This is not right. Here's Jones's specific advice. Before the decision to end the marriage is made, efforts to prevent divorce should be exhausted. And the following questions considered. What does the character of God dictate? How does the mind of Christ impact this decision? Are any of the four elements of marriage being violated? Okay, so read. Your church leader, your respected people look to you, they go to you, read. Second, get them to think. When they come to you, don't tell them what to do. Help them work it out. Jesus didn't always give the straight answer. Sometimes he gave no answer. Sometimes he, he answered with a question. A couple people want him to rule, to get involved in their dispute. Who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? And in another place, the law of how do you read it? He says in John's Gospel, come and see. These are all answers to people's questions. How about this one? Bring me a denarius. Mm. Go and learn what this means. The goal is to help people to internalize the principles. If not, we can reinforce legalism unwittingly. Third, consider the grounds for divorce carefully. Verbal abuse, for example, is a violation of the wedding vows. Whoever's doing that is not protecting his or her spouse. And I know of situations where uh, the voice, there, people are shouting, there's profanity. That doesn't mean, okay, we're getting divorced. But that is, if that's what your life is like, that is clearly a violation of promises that were made uh, in the marriage contract, the marriage covenant. And of course, pornography is a violation of wedding vows. But there's no need to wait until intercourse has taken place, and then, okay, now we can get a divorce. Now the church will recognize because he went all the way or she slept with him. And just because someone has stopped coming to church doesn't mean that person's a non-Christian. It doesn't necessarily mean that he or she automatically falls into the category of unbeliever. That is the one who's left the faithful spouse behind, 1 Corinthians 7. I don't think that the faithful spouse, the one who's still the church member officially, should divorce him or her if things can be worked out. Marriage can be intensely stressful, and I wouldn't take someone's failure to turn up for a couple of weeks, even if they said, I've had it with this church. I wouldn't take that as a final word. 
they could well come back. Just be patient. Fourthly, the victim of broken vows decides when the marriage is over, not his or her spouse. And that's especially the case when there's abuse in a marriage. In Stone Brewer, only the Lord knows the heart. We cannot leave it up to the minister or a church leadership team to decide when a marriage ends. It's up to the individual victim in prayer before the Lord. Only they and the Lord know what their life is really like. Only they know if the partner has expressed repentance, and only they will have to live with the consequences of the decision. Now, you might think I'm saying that you should never be involved in such domestic disputes and divorce or, or marriage issues. And I'm not saying that if you're a church leader, but I think too often we've been unnecessarily involved and often ending up siding with the husband over against the wife. Refer, this leads directly to the fifth counsel, um, refer the couple to pastoral counsel, or refer one of them if only one of them will go, if you're not a professional yourself. Most church leaders are not. They may have had some training, they may have been through a few seminars, but I'm talking about it at a professional level. Even if you are a trained counselor, make sure your counsel is truly biblical. You know, you may use Bible verses, but you know, it's not just reflecting your denomination's position. Again, back to David and Stone Brewer. Marriage counseling is often hampered by the lack of a coherent biblical approach. A Christian counselor can say with confidence that believers do have grounds for divorce in cases of adultery, abuse, or neglect, but that Jesus asks us to forgive partners who repent after breaking their vows. Jesus allows us to divorce a hard-hearted partner, but neither he nor Paul chose to define how much neglect is too much unlike the rabbis who defined the minimum amount of food, clothing, and conjugal love that was due. I have to intercede. It sounds crazy, but the rabbis decided how many times you would have sex with your spouse depending on your occupation and how much food. You know, everything was quantified you know, and given monetary value. My goodness. This biblical teaching gives people who are suffering within marriages both an encouragement to persevere and a safety net when they find they cannot cope with it anymore. They can, if necessary, divorce their hard-hearted partner in the knowledge that God himself was forced down his route, this route when Israel hard-heartedly broke her marriage vows to him. And divorce is never good, but sometimes it's the only way to end the evil of a broken marriage. Sixthly, always be discreet. Maintain confidentiality. People's marriages shouldn't be discussed in a leader's meeting or a staff meeting. There are laws governing the disclosure of personal details. Seventh, finally, relate respectfully to other leaders who may not arrive at the same conclusions that you arrive at. Although how we handle divorce and remarriage is important, it's not a central issue of the faith. It's not a core issue. I'm not saying it's minor peripheral, but it's in that middle circle, the circle of what is important and staying unified when we don't agree on things that are important really shows our character as Christians. But marriage and divorce is not at the center of those three concentric circles, nor is it at the edge. It's in that, that middle range. And we've got to do better respecting each other when we have different views. I hope you'll take these uh, comments or strong suggestions in the spirit in which they're intended, and that God will bless you and your ministry 
and your continued study of this important We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on to marry or not to marry. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.